0: Volume 1, Chapter 13 of Marius the Epicurean. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Marius the Epicurean by Walter Patter. CHAPTER 13. The Mistress and Mother of Palaces. After that sharp, brief winter, the sun was already at work, softening leaf and bud, as you might feel by a faint sweetness in the air. But he did his work behind an evenly white sky, against which the abode of the Caesars, its cypresses and bronze roofs, seemed like a picture in beautiful but melancholy colour, as Marius climbed the long flights of steps to be introduced to the Emperor Aurelius. Attired in the newest mode, his legs wound in dainty fasciae of white leather, with the heavy gold ring of the ingenuus, and in his toga of ceremony he still retained all his country freshness of complexion. The eyes of the golden youth of Rome were upon him as the chosen friend of Cornelius, and the destined servant of the emperor, but not jealously. In spite of, perhaps partly because of, his habitual reserve of manner, he had become the fashion even among those who felt instinctively the irony which lay beneath that remarkable self-possession as of one taking all things with a difference from other people perceptible in voice in expression and even in his dress It was, in truth, the air of one who, entering vividly into life, and relishing to the full the delicacies of its intercourse, yet feels all the while, from the point of view of an ideal philosophy, that he is but conceding reality to suppositions, choosing of his own will to walk in a daydream, of the elusiveness of which he at least is aware— In the house of the chief chamberlain Marius waited for the due moment of admission to the emperor's presence. He was admiring the peculiar decoration of the walls, coloured like rich old red leather. In the midst of one of them was depicted, under a trellis of fruit you might have gathered, the figure of a woman knocking at a door with wonderful reality of perspective then the summons came and in a few minutes the etiquette of the imperial household being still a simple matter he had passed the curtains which divided the central hall of the palace into three parts three degrees of approach to the sacred person and was speaking to aurelius himself not in greek in which the emperor oftenest conversed with the learned but more familiarly in latin adorned however or disfigured by many a greek phrase as now and again french phrases have made the adornment of fashionable english it was with real kindliness that marcus aurelius looked upon marius as a youth of great attainments in greek letters and philosophy and he liked also his serious expression being as we know a believer in the doctrine of physiognomy that as he puts it not love only but every other affection of man's soul "'looks out very plainly from the window of the eyes. "'The apartment in which Marius found himself "'was of ancient aspect and richly decorated "'with the favourite toys of two or three generations "'of imperial collectors, now finally revised "'by the high connoisseurship of the Stoic Emperor himself, "'though destined not much longer to remain together there. "'It is the repeated boast of Aurelius That he had learnt from old Antoninus Pius to maintain authority without the constant use of guards, in a robe woven by the handmaids of his own consort, with no processional lights or images, and that a prince may shrink himself almost into the figure of a private gentleman. And yet again, as at his first sight of him, Marius was struck by the profound religiousness of the surroundings of the imperial presence the effect might have been due in part to the very simplicity, the discreet and scrupulous simplicity, of the central figure in this splendid abode. But Marius could not forget that he saw before him not only the head of the Roman religion, but one who might actually have claimed something like divine worship, had he cared to do so. Though the fantastic pretensions of Caligula had brought some contempt on that claim, which had become almost a jest under the ungainly Claudius, yet from Augustus downwards a vague divinity had seemed to surround the Caesars even in this life. And the peculiar character of Aurelius, at once a ceremonious polytheist, never forgetful of his pontifical calling, and a philosopher whose mystic speculation encircled him with a sort of saintly halo, had restored to his person, without his intending it, something of that divine prerogative or prestige though he would never allow the immediate dedication of altars to himself yet the image of his genius his spirituality or celestial counterpart was placed among those of the deified princes of the past and his family including faustina and the young commodus was spoken of as the holy or divine house Many a Roman courtier agreed with the barbarian chief, who, after contemplating a predecessor of Aurelius, withdrew from his presence with the exclamation, I have seen a god to-day. The very roof of his house, rising into a pediment or gable, like that of the sanctuary of a god, the laurels on either side its doorway, the chaplet of oak leaves above, seemed to designate the place for religious veneration and notwithstanding all this, the household of Aurelius was singularly modest, with none of the wasteful expense of palaces after the fashion of Louis Fourteenth. the palatial dignity being felt only in a peculiar sense of order, the absence of all that was casual, of vulgarity and discomfort. A merely official residence of his predecessors, the Palatine had become the favourite dwelling-place of Aurelius its many-coloured memories suiting, perhaps, his pensive character, and the crude splendours of Nero and Hadrian being now subdued by time. The windowless Roman abode must have had much of what to a modern would-be gloom. How did the children, one wonders, endure houses with so little escape for the eye into the world outside? Aurelius, who had altered little else, choosing to live there in a genuine homeliness— had shifted and made the most of the level lights, and broken out a quite medieval window here and there, and the clear daylight, fully appreciated by his youthful visitor, made pleasant shadows among the objects of the imperial collection. Some of these, indeed, by reason of their Greek simplicity and grace, themselves shone out like spaces of a purer early light amid the splendours of the Roman manufacture." Though he looked, thought Marius, like a man who did not sleep enough, he was abounding and bright to-day, after one of those pitiless headaches which since boyhood had been the thorn in his side, challenging the pretensions of his philosophy to fortify one in humble endurances. At the first moment, to Marius remembering the spectacle of the Emperor in ceremony, it was almost bewildering to be in private conversation with him there was much in the philosophy of aurelius much consideration of mankind at large of great bodies aggregates and generalities after the stoic manner which on a nature less rich than his might have acted as an inducement to care for people in inverse proportion to their nearness to him that has sometimes been the result of the stoic cosmopolitanism aurelius however determined to beautify by all means great or little a doctrine which had in it some potential sourness had brought all the quickness of his intelligence and long years of observation to bear on the conditions of social intercourse he had early determined not to make business an excuse to decline the offices of humanity not to pretend to be too much occupied with important affairs to concede what life with others may hourly demand and with such success that in an age which had made much of the finer points of that intercourse it was felt that the mere honesty of his conversation was more pleasing than other men's flattery his agreeableness to his young visitor to-day was in truth a blossom of the same wisdom which had made of lucius verus really a brother the wisdom of not being exigent with men any more than with fruit-trees it is his own favourite figure beyond their nature and there was another person still nearer to him regarding whom this wisdom became a marvel of equity of charity the centre of a group of princely children in the same apartment with aurelius amid all the refined intimacies of a modern home sat the empress faustina warming her hands over a fire with her long fingers lighted up red by the glowing coals of the brazier Marius looked close upon the most beautiful woman in the world, who was also the great paradox of the age, among her boys and girls. As has been truly said of the numerous representations of her in art, so in life she had the air of one curious, restless, to enter into conversation with the first comer. She had certainly the power of stimulating a very ambiguous sort of curiosity about herself. And Marius found this enigmatic point in her expression, that even after seeing her many times he could never precisely recall her features in absence. The lad of six years, looking older, who stood beside her, impatiently plucking a rose to pieces over the hearth, was in outward appearance his father, the young Verissimus over again, but with a certain feminine length of feature, and with all his mother's alertness, or licence, of gaze yet rumour knocked at every door and window of the imperial house regarding the adulterers who knocked at them, or quietly left their lover's garlands there. Was not that likeness of the husband in the boy beside her really the effect of a shameful magic in which the blood of the murdered gladiator, his true father, had been an ingredient? Were the tricks for deceiving husbands which the Roman poet describes really hers, and her household an efficient school of all the arts of furtive love? Or was the husband too aware, like every one beside? Were certain sudden deaths which happened there really the work of apoplexy, or the plague? The man whose ears, whose soul, those rumours were meant to penetrate, was, however, faithful to his sanguine and optimist philosophy, to his determination that the world should be to him simply what the higher reason preferred to conceive it. And the life's journey Aurelius had made so far, though involving much moral and intellectual loneliness, had been ever in affectionate and helpful contact with other wayfarers, very unlike himself, Since his days of earliest childhood in the Lateran gardens, he seemed to himself, blessing the gods for it after deliberate survey, to have been always surrounded by kinsmen, friends, servants of exceptional virtue. From the great Stoic idea that we are merely fellow-citizens of one city, he had derived a tenderer, a more equitable estimate than was common among Stoics, of the eternal shortcomings of men and women. Considerations that might tend to the sweetening of his temper, it was his daily care to store away, with a kind of philosophic pride in the thought that no one took more good naturedly than he the oversights of his neighbours. For had not Plato taught, it was not paradox, but simple truth of experience, that if people sin, it is because they know no better, and are under the necessity of their own ignorance hard to himself he seemed at times doubtless to decline too softly upon unworthy persons actually he came thereby upon many a useful instrument the empress faustina he would seem at least to have kept by a constraining affection from becoming altogether what most people have believed her and one in her We must take him at his word in the thoughts, abundantly confirmed by letters, on both sides, in his correspondence with Cornelius Fronto, a consolation the more secure, perhaps, because misknown of others. Was the secret of her actual blamelessness, after all, with him who has at least screened her name? At all events, the one thing quite certain about her, besides her extraordinary beauty, is her sweetness to himself no the wise who had made due observation on the trees of the garden would not expect to gather grapes of thorns or fig-trees and he was the vine putting forth his genial fruit by natural law again and again after his kind whatever use people might make of it certainly his actual presence never lost its power and faustina was glad in it to-day the birthday of one of her children a boy who stood at her knee holding in his fingers tenderly a tiny silver trumpet, one of his birthday gifts. "'For my part, unless I conceive my hurt to be such, I have no hurt at all,' boasts the would-be apathetic emperor, and how I care to conceive of the thing rests with me. Yet when his children fall sick or die, this pretense breaks down, and he is broken-hearted, and one of the charms of certain of his letters still extant, is his reference to those childish sicknesses. On my return to Lorium, he writes, I found my little lady, Domnulam meam, in a fever, and again in a letter to one of the most serious of men. You will be glad to hear that our little one is better, and running about the room. Parvolam nostram melius valere, et intra cubiculum discurere. The young Commodus had departed from the chamber, anxious to witness the exercises of certain gladiators having a native taste for such company, inherited, according to popular rumour, from his true father, anxious also to escape from the too impressive company of the gravest and sweetest specimen of old age Marius had ever seen, the tutor of the imperial children who had arrived to offer his birthday congratulations, and now, very familiarly and affectionately, made a part of the group, falling on the shoulders of the Emperor, kissing the Empress Faustina on the face, the little ones on the face and hands. Marcus Cornelius Fronto, the orator, favourite teacher of the Emperor's youth, afterwards his most trusted counsellor, and now the undisputed occupant of the sophistic throne, whose equipage, elegantly mounted with silver, Marius had seen in the streets of Rome, had certainly turned his many personal gifts to account with a good fortune, remarkable even in that age so indulgent to professors and rhetoricians. The gratitude of the Emperor Aurelius, always generous to his teachers, arranging their very quarrels sometimes, for they were not always fair to one another, had helped him to a really great place in the world. But his sumptuous appendages, including the villa and gardens of Mycenas, had been born with an air perfectly becoming— by the professor of a philosophy which, even in its most accomplished and elegant phase, presupposed a gentle contempt for such things. With an intimate practical knowledge of manners, physiognomies, smiles, disguises, flatteries, and courtly tricks of every kind, a whole accomplished rhetoric of daily life, he applied them all to the promotion of humanity, and especially of men's family affection. Through a long life of now eighty years he had been, as it were, surrounded by the gracious and soothing air of his own eloquence, the fame, the echoes of it, like warbling birds or murmuring bees. Setting forth in that fine medium the best ideas of matured pagan philosophy, he had become the favourite director of noble youth. Yes, it was the one instance Marius, always eagerly on the lookout for such, had yet seen of a perfectly tolerable, perfectly beautiful old age, an old age in which there seemed, to one who perhaps habitually overvalued the expression of youth, nothing to be regretted, nothing really lost, in what years had taken away. The wise old man, whose blue eyes and fair skin were so delicate, uncontaminate, and clear, would seem to have replaced carefully and consciously each natural trait of youth, as it departed from him, by an equivalent grace of culture, and had the blitheness, the placid cheerfulness, as he had also the infirmity, the claim on stronger people, of a delightful child. And yet he seemed to be but awaiting his exit from life, that moment with which the Stoics were almost as much preoccupied as the Christians, however differently, and set Marius pondering on the contrast between a placidity like this at eighty years, and the sort of desperateness he was aware of in his own manner of entertaining that thought. His infirmities, nevertheless, had been painful and long continued, with losses of children, of pet grandchildren what with the crowd and the wretched streets it was a sign of affection which had cost him something for the old man to leave his own house at all that day and he was glad of the emperor's support as he moved from place to place among the children he protests so often to have loved as his own for a strange piece of literary good fortune at the beginning of the present century has set free the long-buried fragrance of this famous friendship of the old world from below a valueless later manuscript, in a series of letters, wherein the two writers exchange, for the most part, their evening thoughts, especially at family anniversaries, and with entire intimacy, on their children, on the art of speech, on all the various subtleties of the science of images, rhetorical images, above all, of course, on sleep and matters of health they are full of mutual admiration of each other's eloquence, restless in absence till they see one another again, noting, characteristically, their very dreams of each other, expecting the day which will terminate the office, the business, or duty, which separates them, as superstitious people watch for the star at the rising of which they may break their fast. To one of the writers, to Aurelius, the correspondence was sincerely of value, we see him once reading his letters with genuine delight on going to rest. Fronto seeks to deter his pupil from writing in Greek. Why buy at great cost a foreign wine inferior to that from one's own vineyard? Aurelius, on the other hand, with an extraordinary innate susceptibility to words, la parole pour la parole, as the French say, despairs in the presence of Fronto's rhetorical perfection. Like the modern visitor to the Capitoline, and some other museums, Fronto had been struck, pleasantly struck, by the family likeness among the Antonines, and it was part of his friendship to make much of it in the case of the children of Faustina. "'Well, I have seen the little ones,' he writes to Aurelius, then apparently absent from them. "'I have seen the little ones, the pleasantest sight of my life, for they are as like yourself as could possibly be.' it has well repaid me for my journey over that slippery road and up those steep rocks for i beheld you not simply face to face before me but more generously whichever way i turned to my right and my left for the rest i found them heaven be thanked with healthy cheeks and lusty voices one was holding a slice of white bread like a king's son the other a crust of brown bread as becomes the offspring of a philosopher I pray the gods to have both the sower and the seed in their keeping, to watch over this field wherein the ears of corn are so kindly alike. Ah! I heard, too, their pretty voices, so sweet that in the childish prattle of one and the other I seemed somehow to be listening, yes, in that chirping of your pretty chickens, to the limpid and harmonious notes of your own oratory. Take care. You will find me growing independent.' "'having those I could love in your place. "'Love on the surety of my eyes and ears.' "'Magistro meo salutem,' replies the Emperor. "'I too have seen my little ones in your sight of them, "'as also I saw yourself in reading your letter. "'It is that charming letter forces me to write thus. "'With reiterations of affection, that is, "'which are continual in these letters on both sides,' And which may strike a modern reader perhaps as fulsome, or again as having something in common with the old Judaic unction of friendship. They were certainly sincere. To one of those children, Fronto had now brought the birthday gift of the silver trumpet, upon which he ventured to blow softly now and again, turning away with eyes delighted at the sound when he thought the old man was not listening. It was the well-worn, valetudinarian subject of sleep on which Fronto and Aurelius were talking together, Aurelius always feeling it a burden, Fronto a thing of magic capacities, so that he had written an encomium in its praise, and often by ingenious arguments recommends his imperial pupil not to be sparing of it. Today, with his younger listeners in mind, he had a story to tell about it. They say that our father Jupiter, when he ordered the world at the beginning, divided time into two parts exactly equal. The one part he clothed with light, the other with darkness. He called them day and night, and he assigned rest to the night, and to-day the work of life. At that time sleep was not yet born, and men passed the whole of their lives awake. Only the quiet of the night was ordained for them, instead of sleep. But it came to pass, little by little, being that the minds of men are restless, that they carried on their business alike by night as by day, and gave no part at all to repose. And Jupiter, when he perceived that even in the night-time they ceased not from trouble and disputation, and that even the courts of law remained open, it was the pride of Aurelius, as Fronto knew, to be assiduous in those courts till far into the night. Resolved to appoint one of his brothers to be the overseer of the night and have authority over man's rest. But Neptune pleaded in excuse the gravity of his constant charge of the seas, and Father Dis the difficulty of keeping in subjection the spirits below, and Jupiter, having taken counsel with the other gods, perceived that the practice of nightly vigils was somewhat in favour it was then for the most part that juno gave birth to her children minerva the mistress of all art and craft loved the midnight lamp mars delighted in the darkness for his plots and sallies and the favour of venus and bacchus was with those who roused by night then it was that jupiter formed the design of creating sleep and he added him to the number of the gods and gave him the charge over night and rest "'putting into his hands the keys of human eyes. "'With his own hands he mingled the juices "'wherewith sleep should soothe the hearts of mortals, "'herb of enjoyment and herb of safety, "'gathered from a grove in heaven, "'and from the meadows of Acheron the herb of death, "'expressing from it one single drop only, "'no bigger than a tear one might hide. "'With this juice, he said, "'pour slumber upon the eyelids of mortals.' so soon as it hath touched them they will lay themselves down motionless under thy power be not afraid they shall revive and in a while stand up again upon their feet thereafter jupiter gave wings to sleep attached not like mercury's to his heels but to his shoulders like the wings of love for he said it becomes thee not to approach men's eyes as with the noise of chariots and the rushing of a swift courser but in placid and merciful flight, as upon the wings of a swallow, nay, with not so much as the flutter of the dove. Besides all this, that he might be yet pleasanter to men, he committed to him also a multitude of blissful dreams, according to every man's desire. One watched his favourite actor, another listened to the flute, or guided a charioteer in the race. In his dream the soldier was victorious, the general was born in triumph, the wanderer returned home. Yes, and sometimes those dreams come true. Just then Aurelius was summoned to make the birthday offerings to his household gods. A heavy curtain of tapestry was drawn back, and beyond it Marius gazed for a few moments into the Lararium, or Imperial Chapel. A patrician youth in white habit was in waiting with a little chest in his hand containing incense for the use of the altar. On richly carved consoles, or sideboards, around this narrow chamber were arranged the rich apparatus of worship and the golden or gilded images, adorned to day with fresh flowers, among them that image of fortune from the apartments of Antoninus Pius and such of the emperor's own teachers, as were gone to their rest. A dim fresco on the wall commemorated the ancient piety of Lucius Albinius, who, in flight from Rome, on the morrow of a great disaster, overtaking certain priests on foot with their sacred utensils, descended from the wagon in which he rode, and yielded it to the ministers of the gods. As he ascended into the chapel, the emperor paused, and with a grave but friendly look at his young visitor, delivered a parting sentence, audible to him alone. Imitation is the most acceptable part of worship. The gods had much rather mankind should resemble than flatter them. Make sure that those to whom you come nearest be the happier by your presence. It was the very spirit of the scene and the hour, the hour Marius had spent in the imperial house. How temperate, how tranquillising, what humanity! Yet, as he left the eminent company concerning whose ways of life at home he had been so youthfully curious, and sought, after his manner, to determine the main trait in all this, he had to confess that it was a sentiment of mediocrity, though of a mediocrity for once really golden. Chapter 13.